The text that we will be peering into today is the passage that Pastor McDonald read to us earlier in the service, but it will help you to have Matthew 27 open before you as we look at those first 31 verses to the degree to which we are able. I, however, would like to read verse 31 again before we begin the exposition. Will you join with me in prayer? Our Father, I am totally unworthy to come into Thy presence in prayer, and totally unworthy to lead Thy people in prayer, and totally unworthy to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ in such a text as is before us especially. But I do not come in my own worth. I have no worth of my own. I come only in the merit of Jesus Christ. And pray now for the people whom I serve and ask that the Holy Spirit will bless this portion of Scripture to every heart that is here. And we together pray that if there are those who are lost and who do not know the Savior, either here presently or who will be listening later or even presently on live stream, that they would come to know the Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray that our own understanding as believers in Christ of the depth and wonder of the atonement, that that may happen deeply in our hearts today. May the word of the Lord indwell us richly, and may we move on to Easter Sunday morning against the backdrop of what the Savior did when he came to redeem us from our sins on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand, if you will. I would like to read verse 31, the capstone of the text that we have read this morning. And this is the Word of God. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. The Word of the Lord. Please be seated people of God, on the basis of God's Word, every Lord's Day and again today, we use the Apostles' Creed and we confess he suffered under Pontius Pilate. If the prior section of Matthew demonstrates judgment on the religious establishment, so here we have judgment upon the civil establishment that refuses to bow to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Most importantly, we see the great moral principle of the universe in this passage, which is the principle of substitutionary atonement. Substitution. We sinners must have a substitute in our place, and the only substitute for our sins can be Jesus Christ. Now, John gives us perhaps more detail about Pilate, but this account here in Matthew's gospel is God's word also and very compelling. We're not certain of the setting for the trial. Many think that it was Herod's old palace on the west side of Jerusalem. But at any case, we come in the first couple of verses to the opening scene. And that's first, the opening scene. It's morning. The day our Lord was crucified. The Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, had met illegally and passed a resolution, a plan to deliver Jesus to the civil authorities and to demand a death sentence. 
they've decided how to present their case against Jesus to Pilate. Their concern is blasphemy, but they know that there will be no death penalty on the basis of blasphemy. And so they twist the facts and present a way that would suggest treason. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Who was Pilate? He was the prefect or procurator appointed by Tiberius Caesar. He held the power of life and death without needing to go to Caesar in order to execute anyone. And from Josephus and other sources, we learn that Pilate was a cruel ruler who hated his Jewish subjects. But the Sanhedrin is willing to make use of him and put political pressure upon him so that Jesus would be crucified, such as their hatred of Jesus. But then as we move on in the narrative, the second thing that we see is the death of Judas. And this shows us several things of importance before we come to the trial. It deepens the impression of the Sanhedrin's guilt. His remorse was determined, that is Judas' remorse, was determined by the Sanhedrin's decision to condemn Jesus. And so he comes back with this change of mind and returns to them the the, the 30 pieces of silver. And the main point here is to show that Jesus' crucifixion was actually divinely ordained. Of course it was. All things are in his sovereign hand, but especially in a very wonderful way, divinely ordained. In chapter 26, verse 24, we were told by the Lord Jesus, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. In verse 4 of chapter 27, he was saying, I have sinned and betrayed innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Well, it should have been something to them. They are betraying innocent blood, but not only innocent blood, they are betraying the innocent blood of the incarnate Son of God, and they are willing to kill Jesus, but they are unwilling to allow 30 pieces of silver to enter into the temple treasury, and so they buy the potter's field, and they are thoroughly unjust, but they are very religious about it. This emphasis on fulfillment is also found in verse 9 of chapter 27. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. And what is happening here, of course, is that Matthew, who is the great redemptive historical theologian in the gospel narrative, sees Zechariah 11 and Jeremiah 19 as providing patterns of apostasy. And he sees this ultimately fulfilled in the apostasy of the Sanhedrin and their rejection of Jesus, who, to quote the very distinctive words of Dr. Carson, was cheaply valued, rejected by the Jews, and whose betrayal money was put to a purpose that pointed to the destruction of the nation. In what they are doing, they are destroying themselves and destroying their own nation, as is true of everyone who rejects the Son of God. 
So what is happening here is the fulfillment of God's own eternally purposed plan to redeem his people from their sins, and the wrath of man is praising him. Now we come thirdly to the trial itself before Pilate. And as we think about this, remember, for example, the book of Daniel, a spiritual world empire and conflict with the empires of the world. In that sense, the Lord Jesus Christ is standing before Antichrist as he stands before Pilate. Two world empires that are locked in antithesis against one another. And he begins his interrogation in verse 11. Are you the king of the Jews? And perhaps Pilate has the very papyrus in his hand with all of the various charges and this being at the top. And he wants to know if Jesus is, after all, a political revolutionary. Is he an insurrectionist? A strictly religious charge would not have been sufficient for a death penalty. The charge is quite obviously sedition. They want Jesus put to death on the charge of sedition and insurrection. And behind this is the reason for the inscription above the cross. As we see later in verse 37, this is the king of the Jews. Yes, Pilate, he is the king of the Jews. He is a king such as you have never seen. He is a king such as you and the world has never known. He will die, but he will be raised from the dead, and he will be proclaimed king. And you, Pilate, will kneel before him. And this theme goes all the way back to the prologue of Matthew and even the point of his birth in Bethlehem, the town of King David. This is the king, as we sang this morning, upon the cross, our king. He is the king through it all. And Jesus' answer in verse 11, you have said so. Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so. Why is his answer ambiguous? Why is he not straightforward with Pilate? Why does he not tell him exactly who he is in no uncertain terms? Why does he not elaborate upon his kingdom and elaborate upon who he is? Well, on a level of his accuser's understanding, what they presently understand about him, the charge is false. But the charge is true on a deeper level. Pilate could never have understood a king enthroned on a cross. It would have made no sense to him and no sense to the Jews. He could not understand that the kingdom of God is the inbreaking of God's saving rule, forming a new covenant church of truth and love, of blood-bought sinners. He could never have understood that. And so in verse 12, Jesus was silent before the priests. And Pilate points out that the Jews brought multiple charges in verse 13, but he answered none of them. And so we read in verse 14, but he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Amazed indeed because Others before Pilate would have been begging for their lives or trying to explain away the charges that are brought, but not the Lord Jesus. Pilate was amazed, and you and I should be amazed also. What if Christ had taught Pilate out of condemning him? Where would we be? 
What if Christ had revealed his kingly powers to him? Where would we be? No, no. The one unflustered figure in the entire narrative is not the Sanhedrin, it's not the Jews, it's not the crowd, it's certainly not Pilate. The one unflustered figure is Jesus Christ. And that silence expresses his lordship. The one on trial is in control and obedient to his father. And this silence points back to Isaiah chapter 53, that wondrous prophecy by that 8th century BC prophet of the coming of the Messiah, in which we read in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus, by his silence, is unveiling the truth of his identity for anyone who has eyes to see. No member of the Sanhedrin even has Isaiah 53 before them. No member of the Sanhedrin is able to see Scripture that is being fulfilled right before their eyes. And he came to suffer a ransom for many, and nothing will hinder his purpose. And so he is silent. Then we move in the narrative, fourthly, Christ condemned and scourged. And even though we know that the greater part of the suffering of the Savior is understanding in the depth of his soul that he is bearing the sins of his people as he goes to the cross, we should never lightly consider the physical suffering of our Lord and the emotional stress of these trials. There is here, of course, the subplot regarding Barabbas, the insurrectionist and murderer. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent, and yet he will condemn him. Religious leaders, according to verse 18, are envious, and according to verse 20, they had stirred up the crowd. The crowd asked Pilate to follow custom and release a prisoner, as happened every year at this time, at Passover time. And then there's this ominous, ugly chant beginning here in verse 21. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And if the crowd is faced with choosing the one Pilate wants to free or the one the Sanhedrin wants to free, they will choose with the Sanhedrin. Now listen, Barabbas is called in John 18.40 a leistes, which means an insurrectionist. And this word can mean robber, but it usually means insurrectionist. The two crucified on either side of Jesus, even the word here in Matthew used of them, is the plural form of that word, insurrectionist. So probably the three cross posts 
had already been prepared to crucify Barabbas as an insurrectionist and two of his assistants, those associated with him. And Jesus takes the place of the man in the middle, Barabbas. Now here is substitution. The just dies for the unjust. But substitution is why he came. Though innocent he dies that the unjust may be justified. Jesus is substituted on death row in the place of Barabbas so that Jesus might be substituted for sinners like us and that he might redeem us from our sins. Please understand that the great moral principle of the universe is the holiness of God. And that when we sin against the holiness of God, we deserve his infinite displeasure. And mirroring that great moral principle is the great moral principle of the universe that someone can die in our place who can meet that holy standard. And that is why God became man and dwelt among us. And that is why this trial and that is why the cross. Because if you've never seen it before, my lost friend, you need a redeemer. You need a sinless substitute. And there is only one who could do that. And that is Jesus. Wasn't it Thomas Goodwin who somewhere said, as he thinks of the great cost of Jesus shedding his blood to redeem us from our sins, Goodwin said he could have made new ones cheaper. But he didn't. So Pilate was warned not to do this. In verse 19, his wife had had, had, had terror in her heart because of dreams over the Lord Jesus, and it simply underscores once again his innocence. And Pilate gives in, and we read in verses 24 through 26. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood, See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood, listen to this, His blood be on us and on our children. Then He released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered Him to be crucified. The collective guilt of the Jewish nation is underscored. Jesus was scourged and he was delivered. Now recall Jesus' third passion prediction in chapter 20 of Matthew's gospel. There he had said in verses 18 and 19 of Matthew 20, See, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Now the Jews limited scourging to 40 lashes, 
minus one. But the Romans had no limitations on flogging whatsoever. This is the flagellum, the short-handled whip. The thongs held lead and brass or sharp bone, and the victim was stripped and tied to a post, and there's his bare back, and usually two men, one on either side, would scourge, and it would tear the flesh and open veins and sometimes even expose inner organs. Roman citizens were exempt from this awful torture. I looked it up in Josephus. And he refers in two places to this Roman method of scourging. Uh, in um, the Jewish War 21.5, he says, whipped until every one of their inward parts appeared naked. And in 6.6, he says, whipped till his bones were laid bare. This scourging, this scourging, though, was vicarious too. His entire life was vicarious in our place as he obeyed the law that we broke. And his sufferings are vicarious as he pays the penalty of our sins. And so rightly, the Heidelberg Catechism asks, what do you understand by the word he suffered? The answer is that he, all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. But do not forget Behind this is the Lord Jehovah himself, Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid, Jehovah hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So here we have the perfect example that what is done against God's will is not done without God's will that the Lord is in sovereign control. The cross was purposed for our salvation, predestined by God, yet wicked men are fully responsible for their own sin. And then we see, fifthly, Christ mocked and tortured by the soldiers. He was robed in purple. Matthew says scarlet. The ancients did not always distinguish shades as clearly as we do. Must have hurt terribly after the scourging to be mocked by the soldiers. The cumulative impact of what he went through. And it's vicious. They do not realize as they mock him as king that they speak the truth, that he is the king. And again, the wrath of man praises him. And he is crowned with thorns. Maybe palm spines or acanthus that crush into Jesus' head. Genesis 3.18, you will remember, connects thorns with the fall of Adam, our first parent. And now the last Adam bears the curse. And blood must be dripping down his face. And they give to him a staff for a scepter. And replacing Ave Caesar is Hail king of the Jews. And so they, verses 28 and 29, they adored him mockingly. Martin Luther says, so they had a vaudeville, giving him a crown and imperial purple. What more cruel, biting, venomous, devilish mockery could they have devised? 
And that is what happens to the gospel now and ever will. Scourging hurts, but taunts cut deeper. And then we are told in these verses that they spat upon our Lord. Lord. 